Okay, I am not going to be very technical and we are going to do mainly practical. Okay. Uh, this, uh, if you remember back to the last training session we had with Tony, and you're here, um, he um, talked a little bit about uh, worldview and films, uh, but didn't go very much into worldviews. And um, then we thought, well, maybe the thing to do then is to follow that up and sort of go into worldviews. But it very soon gets very sort of technical and very much a sort of remember this list of, you know, this pattern is this worldview and this pattern is this worldview. And then watch the film and try and match the film to the pattern. It's like, great. It's rather dry and rather. Um, so I'm not going to give you a list of qualities like you know, talk about the ins and outs of different worldviews or criticize worldviews or whatever. Rather, I'm going to try a bit of an experiment and see if um, uh, my material that I've done on the relationship between worldview and spirituality, uh, if my definition of spirituality gives us a good grid for uh, watching film clips and getting out of them information about the worldview of the character and filmmakers without having to have in the back of our minds memorised lists of qualities of you know, two dozen different worldviews, as it were. Rather, we approach uh, the clips with three categories in mind only, and then see what we mine out of them. Um, so I, I hope it will be a sort of a fish and an efficient tool uh, box of ideas to give you, and we'll uh, together watch uh, some clips from two films. Uh, first film will be uh, from uh, I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, by Park Chan-wook, who is a uh, South Korean filmmaker, um, director of Old Boy, Lady Vengeance, The Thirst, was his most recent one about the priest who becomes a vampire. Um, we've all done it. It is not a science fiction movie, despite the title. Uh, it's actually a movie about a group, group of people in a mental institution, one of whom thinks that she's a cyborg. But she's not. Okay. Yeah. You've given it away now. Plot yeah. <laughs> spoiler. Yeah, I know. So, uh, the other film that I will be spoiling the plot for you is uh, Ghost in a Shell 2, the Japanese anime sequel to Ghost in a Shell. That's why there's two after it, just to distinguish it. Uh, so, before you start, what screens do people need to be able to see? And I'll I will direct you at the appropriate moment. And you can sort of so shift chairs. Yeah. Is Holly in a comfortable position for both screens? Not at the moment, but she she may well know as she is now. <laughs> but she doesn't have to be. She can just turn the chair and turn it back. Or... Yeah. Uh, so I'm calling this um, viewing <laughs> spiritual <laughs> spiritual worlds through film. We see what This is a, a close-up CGI still from Mogos in the Shell Two. Right. Okay. So here's the the, the dry technical slide, and it goes um, downhill or uphill, point of view from from here. Uh, so we talked a little bit about worldview last time, and this is really to make the point that, that there's no one definition of a worldview that is agreed upon. There's lots of slightly differing and overlapping definitions, 
and that actually makes quite a useful point in a moment. So, for example, Ronald H. Nash says, in its simplest terms, a worldview is a set of beliefs about the most important issues in life. So, you know, your beliefs about uh, which flavour ice cream tastes best don't count as part of your worldview, but your beliefs about whether or not um, there's a god does. That's a fantastic word, a new word, I've never heard that word. Which one? Cardioptic. Oh, forget that. Is that a real word? <laughs> Uh, a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. Um, so we're kind of filtering our experience of reality through our worldview and um, not so much even seeing if it matches but actually tending to make it match um, because we have certain preconceived ideas about things. I'm not going to bother to show you the famous clip of the, uh, the volleyball players and the gorilla from the school conference, because I'm probably know it. Uh, David Burnett, who comes from a more sort of sociology point of view, he's got Clash of Worlds, says so the worldview consists of a shared, a shared framework, it didn't have to be shared according to Nash, uh, of ideas held by a particular society concerning how they perceive the world. Everyday experiences are fitted into this framework in order to give a totality of meaning and comprehension for the individual. Worldviews are incarnated in the actual ways of life of a person and his society. And I think that's the more significant kind of development of the idea here. Uh, it's not just about your beliefs, but actually your worldview gets incarnated in your way of life. Um, which is, a way of life is a pretty good translation of a spirituality, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, or David Nagel, or Nagel, or Nagel, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce him. Uh, a vision of life, this is well, a vision of life in the world rooted in and expressed through the human heart. Uh, he's drawing on some of the breadth of the biblical terminology about heart, which can include mind and and so on. Uh, the seat and, sort, uh, and source of the intellect, affections, will, and spirituality. Life, it seems to me, proceeds in his the word cardio. Cardioptically. Thank you, cardioptically. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say cardiopractically. <laughs> uh, a vision of the heart with its deeply embedded ideas, affections, choices, an object of worship, the thing you think is most ultimate. Um, so you see there's a sort of range of overlapping here and it's a little unclear sometimes if you should be talking about worldview or spirituality or what the kind of these words kind of expand and contract depending on who's using them and what the context is. Um, James Sire in The Universe Next Door, which is the book that the cartoon um, worldview book that some of you have borrowed off me and read, maybe, uh, was based on. Uh, commitment, fundamental orientation of the heart, it can be expressed as a story, uh, particularly relevant when you're thinking about film, uh, or, or in a set of presuppositions that might be true or partially true, or etc. Consciously or subconsciously held, it might be held consistently or inconsistently, lots of uh, qualifications, but it's this uh, fundamental orientation of the heart about the basic constitution of reality provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. To use that pagan Greek phrase, 
that's now scripture because St. Paul's scripture we pray today uh, in Acts 17. Um, it's a quote from a Greek poet. Uh, so, worldview, let me introduce you to spirituality, which I came out from a completely sort of different route thinking about education and Jesus' answer to the what's the most important command question. Um, but I lay out uh, in various places uh, spirituality is a way of relating to reality. That's what it is. Um, through our worldview beliefs, that's why I tend to label worldview bottom there in terms of beliefs, quite a sort of narrow definition of that, and then add on attitudes and behaviour. A way of relating to reality, that's talk to ourselves, to each other, the world around us, and the ultimate reality, that kind of covers everything, the dimensions of relationship. Through our worldview beliefs, attitudes and behaviour, and by attitudes here, um, I put it that way to be broader than to say feelings, which is the sort of temptation. I would say a feeling uh, is kind of an emotional signal of your attitude to something. Um, so it's a way in which you recognise your attitude to something, um, but the attitude is the more it's a sort of broader notion to that. You can have an attitude towards something without really feeling it, but just feel numb about it. You know, or you don't have to sort of um, feel that you you love the um, the person or or um, hate the person. Um, you can have no feeling towards them at all, and yet still do. The, the, the loving attitude and thing towards them um, because of your belief. You, when you match a belief and an attitude, that tends to lead you to act in a certain way. And so different sets of beliefs coupled with different attitudes lead to different actions. And it all becomes a circle because we, when we do stuff, that tends to reinforce what we feel and what we believe about them. And it becomes this sort of self-reinforcing uh, circle. Um, you could also divide this up biblically to draw a line there and say faith, belief that, belief in, trust in something you think is true, works. James. That's definitely another biblical way of cutting it out. Which also stems from love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Um, from Jesus drawing on Deuteronomy. Um, so the Christian spirituality is love God with all of your spirituality and love your neighbour as yourself. Um, so for example, first uh, reaction to the first sermon, uh, Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, what Peter had been preaching, he told them various truth claims. Jesus was here, he did this, you killed him. He rose from the dead. We saw him. They heard these truth claims. Uh, they obviously believed them because they were cut to the heart. They had a certain attitude response to it, uh, which was a positive attitude and response to that. And then they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do in response? Because we believe this and we act this way, what should that lead us to do? Um, 
once you start having these categories sort of framework in mind, it starts popping out at you all over the all over the place. Um, Paul from Colossians here, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, let the word of Christ dwell in you which is you teach, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it. And it seems to tends to become this general framework in lots of places. Uh, so, to apply that a little bit more specifically and to sort of give some uh, hopefully useful questions to sort of interrogate them with, you and you, you, you can start at any level of this and you can apply it to characters in the film or to the maker of the film, as it were. Um, you know, that's a bit vague because films are made by lots of people and some are more auteur than others, as it were. Um, and of course, there might be a difference between the spirituality of the character in the film to another one and to the filmmaker. Um, so there's it can be an interesting interplay between these discoveries once you've made them. So in terms of beliefs, beliefs about, in terms of worldview, the really important questions, as uh, Nash was saying, you know, what's, what is ultimate reality, or what are its beliefs about God? What is its beliefs about the good life, about meaning, purpose, good and evil, justice, beauty, truth, human nature, those kind of big, who are we, where are we going, should we take sandwiches kind of questions. In terms of attitudes, um, I think particularly useful questions are things like, what does this character value or love? What do they disvalue or hate? Um, how does the film make you feel about what does it make you feel that? And how has it made you feel that? What has the director done in his use of camera work or editing or music or whatever to sort of um, birth in you a certain attitude towards something or someone. And in terms of actions, you get all the usual journalistic questions, you know, um, who, what, how, where, who does what, what do they do, who do they do it to, what's their goal, what are they prepared to do to achieve that goal. Most film stories are about achieving a goal and overcoming some sort of obstacle to that goal, what the character has to do in order to overcome that obstacle to get the goal, whether it's worth it. Um, in terms of direction, things like what, what are we shown, but equally what are we not shown, and how. So, uh, you know, in Kill Bill, when Quentin Tarantino uh, suddenly decides he's going to show us the fight, but it's going to now be not in live action, it's going to be in cartoon. It's a little less real, or it's going to show it in black and white. Or you're going to see the murder, but only the shadows on the wall as the murder takes place, rather than actually seeing it. Or we're going to only hear it. Or and all of these sort of um, versions as well. Why? What are we showing, but equally, what are we not sort of showing them how? Um, what words, sound, and or music do we hear or not hear? What do we see, not see? What do we hear, what do we not hear? Um, so, with that in mind, let me give you some background to I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. 
we're going to plot back around and then we'll watch the last scene of the film. And I've got up on the board at the back there, uh, beliefs, attitudes, and actions. And once we've seen the film, which will be on this screen over here, you know, it's like 3D, isn't it? You really hear coming at you. I think it would be really useful to take uh, the main protagonist of the film and ask questions about her world and spirituality and then see if we can run that again with the filmmaker. Um, whereas on Ghost in the Shell, we'll probably be focusing more, more on the filmmaker. But anyway, so uh, this is uh, Young Goon who works in a radio factory in South Korea and um, basically goes bonkers one day and she's listening to the instructions on how to make these radios. She's in this sort of production line of uh, making all these little transistor radios and she sort of is following the instructions and you know, solder part A to part B, blah, blah, blah. And, um, cut open your arm, put in the wire, put up the radio uh, mask into the, the plug socket over <laughs> and is taken off to hospital because she's, you know, clearly had a bit of an episode in runs in the family. Um, so in uh, hospital, you can see the, the director is exceedingly careful over his use of colour in this film. It's just amazing production design in this film. Um, she, uh, because she thinks she's a cyborg, she's got robot parts in her, she thinks, uh, I don't live off food, I live off electricity. So she's, she's trying to get her nourishment out of uh, batteries, whilst one of the other patients who, who was quite happy to overeat, uh, eats all of her food for her, uh, which results in her getting weaker and weaker and uh, eventually having to be force-fed in the hospital. Um, and during this time, she uh, periodically goes into uh, sort of revenge fantasies where uh, her fingers all pop open and become machine guns and she goes to the hospital killing all of the staff, you know, who are, who are mainly because they're preventing her from going and looking after her granny, who um, thinks she's a mouse and has been taken to mental hospital um, without her dentures, which she really needs because she loves eating this particular food that she can't eat without her dentures. And so she's like, these people are stopping me helping my gran. I must kill them all! And she's like, going and you see it, see it from her point of view, and then you see it from everybody else's point of view. They're, they're all just all standing there going, what's she doing? And she's like... <laughs> yeah. Um, so it has its moments of sort of comic, bizarre fantasy in it, but uh, at its heart it's also sort of rather um, sort of sad and pathetic uh, about this uh, young Goon character. Uh, this is uh, a dream sequence in which, uh, having found out that her gran is dead, her gran comes to visit her from the afterlife, and you see she's tied to the afterlife by this huge elastic band. <laughs> um, and she's like, I'm trying to come to you, I'm trying to come to you, my darling. You know? And uh, they manage to have a hug, and uh, then uh, Gran says, I must, I must tell you something very important, you know, the, the meaning of life, the meaning of life is... <laughs> <laughs> and she's snatched away from her. And there's another scene in which Young Goon, when she's um, when she's had been, she's put through electrotherapy, you know, with the, the brain. And waking up, coming out of the electrotherapy, she sees her gran on the outside of the 
um, sort of incubation kind of machine that she's in. Um, and she can just hear her grand saying, it's very important, I tell you, it's very important, I tell you, the, the purpose of life. <laughs> <laughs> Carpet. So you have this recurring sort of death and uh, life. The, the, the mental institution clearly sort of comes to sort of represent the world. We're living in a in a madhouse where death. You know, who knows if there's anything beyond that, or what? Is there a meaning of purpose to life? Well, maybe what we can't know it, even if there is. Um, and in the mental hospital, she meets another patient called uh, Ilsun. So Yang Gun and Ilsun. Uh, and uh, Ilsun, uh, who has his own bizarre condition to cope with. But he really takes uh, Yang Gun under her wing, falls in love with her. It's a love story. They fall in love. He's looking after her in various ways. And um, he thinks of a very kind of clever way to get her to eat because she's dying from not eating. And he, he says, I, I'm a qualified cyborg engineer. Yeah. I'll take you down to the, to the basement where the staff won't say, I'll get out my, my toolbox. I'll cut open the back panel in you. And I've made this, this fantastic machine uh, that converts rice into electricity and food into electricity. And I put it in and then you'll be able to eat food and it'll turn it into electricity for you. And he takes her down, uh, down there, and he shows her the, the pen. Uh, shows her the, uh, sorry, the, the flick knife thing, the sort of craft knife. And takes it behind her, and then swaps it for a pencil. And draws a door on her back. You know, uh, here, and opens the door, and says, "I'm going to put it in now." Oh yes, it's in there. You know, of course, because she's basically psychotic and having these sort of fantasy episodes and things, she believes him, um, which gets her to eat. Uh, well, almost, because she says, well, what if, what if it breaks? What if, what if this wonderful thing that you've done for me, what if it doesn't work? Kind of, what if it breaks down? And he, he brings out this card, which there's a little heart shape under here. Uh, and he says, don't, don't worry, I've got here a lifetime guarantee from me to you as the engineer. But I will always, for free, you know, fix you if you need me. Yeah, and that's like, oh, <laughs> oh. And then she eats, and everyone in the canteen is like, oh, she's eating there for. Well, he gets her to follow the instructions, like we've been on the production line, and she eats rice, and she starts getting better. Um, but she starts getting better because she's now believing something that's completely false, which works. But what, what she's believing is is also very beautiful as yeah. well. So that's you know, interesting to see the, the themes that are being dealt with here. So let's uh, watch now the last scene of the film in which um, she's convinced that she's heard in the static from one of the lights in the, in the uh, message, uh, which is that she needs to um, explode because she's got a nuclear bomb in her. And uh, in order to trigger the nuclear bomb, she needs to get uh, lots of electricity into her. And think, how can we get lots of electricity into me? Is it I know. Really no. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go out in a thunderstorm and we'll put up my radio aerial like I did in the um, in the factory at the beginning, and we'll get struck by lightning. And there'll be enough energy in the lightning to give me enough power to explode and destroy everything because that's what I'm meant to do because I've, I've heard it, the lights told me you know. 
And so Ilseen helps her with this plan, and out they go uh, in a thunderstorm at the end of the film. So I will now show you this clip, and you might want to use your bits of paper or just mentally write down and think. If I go back, particularly to um, the questions that we had, um, think in terms of, of young goon, the female who's mad, and also uh, you want to ask me the filmmaker. And between us, then we'll put up on the board what we get in terms of what are the character or the filmmaker's beliefs. What are their attitudes or feelings about things or feelings they're creating us? And what are they doing? Or how are they doing it to us? Characters. Yeah, so Ilgun um, and also the filmmaker. You might want to do it twice. You want to watch it, watch it once and do the character and then you could watch it again and do the, the yeah. filmmaker. Are we thing. just doing Young Goon of the characters? Am I right? Uh, Is it worth doing any other character? <sighs> so well, we could do... But we could do um, yeah. It's just it's there's two of them and it's twice the time. Yeah. <laughs> How long is it? I think maybe younger. It's a f- six-minute clip. Okay, right. So not too long. Yeah. End okay. the film. Mm-hmm. So. Let's this over here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did you want to do both characters? Well, whatever you want. Uh, it was a question of clarification. Uh, okay. Trying to steer you one way or the other. Well, I was suggesting that we do Young Goon okay. uh, as a character. So, who's got anything on any of these <coughs> for us to put up there? What have you got? I'm a cyborg. <laughs> yeah. I'm an animal, I'm a bomb, I'm a bomb. I'm a bomb. It's an action, she's trying to, uh, trying to blow, blow up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she still decides to pack, pack a picnic and brush her teeth. She was very, very agitated about Rain getting into the food in the wine. Protect. And then what's the thing about the bit of paper in the back? Oh, that's the bit of paper she's written down with him whilst listening to the to the to the lamp flickering, thinking it's sort of Morse code or whatever, trying to translate it into Korean. So she she knows that she wrote that. Yes, yes. Okay, it says, you, you are a bomb, mm-hmm. your purpose is to blow, is to blow up. Um, yeah. Okay. You, you, know, then you, you need uh, 10,000 billion volts to, to blow up or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they think, well, how are we going to get hold of you know, so many volts? I know. Let's take all this scullings out here. Yeah. So protect food from rain. So she's. Um, Basically, just really joyful at the fact that she's got a purpose and she's going to achieve it. Yeah, so she's. So she's sort of just about being perfect, whether and she's really sort of. Joyful. Um, Purposeful, that's the word. Um, 
she's, she's checked the food, she has brushed teeth, she's valuing uh, food, which of course is very important for a character who beats Lama and has our earlier. Uh, and teeth, not much to do with food. So she's, she, so I was going to say, and I think we've kind of touched on this, but she's, she seems fundamentally conflicted yes. in that she, she was, what's the point in not littering when, when it's all the means for her yeah. But at the same time, she brushes her teeth, she's preserving the food. Yeah. So, so is, clearly this is speculating, having not seen the film. Yeah. Is, is that possibly an indication that though she believes she's a woman she's going to grow up mm. on some level mm. she also believes that she's not going to blow up and destroy everything and there is more yeah. beyond yes yeah. well, I mean, that would fit very much with the sort of film, the, the themes of ambiguity in the film in terms of her dead grandmother coming to her vision saying I've got to tell you about the purpose of life kind of indicating the other one and then being snatched away mm. and not, not knowing what it is or um, her thinking that she's this, but but not. But does it really differ? It's her, like, her life. It's her reality. And, um, yeah. So now we're begin- uh, you're beginning to get into the question of: Is there a consistency or an inconsistency between these things? So um, I'm a cyborg. I'm a I'm a bomb. I need you know X volts to blow, to fulfill my purpose, etc. You know, that clearly um, is all consistent with her trying to explode with all the gubbins going out into the storm. Um, and consistent with littering. Thinking, well, who, who cares what the place is like? It's going to be destroyed in a much bigger way soon anyway. But, well, okay, in one sense, she's sort of, well, this is my purpose in life. I'm glad I've found what my purpose is now. But then, like, you know, on the other hand, brushing teeth, you know, packing a picnic. Here's what we're going to start with, we're up. Um, protecting the food from the rain, thinking, yeah, the precious wines, the rain in it, oh no. So, yeah, there is very much this conflicted... Well, why, why was... Why was the wine precious wine? Was it something to do with the plan, or just it's just wine that she considers precious yeah, for yeah. reasons we know not what? Yeah, and so I think it's just an emphasising of the, the valuing of, of the food, sort of her singing these religious tunes, but putting food into them. So earlier on in the film, when she first starts eating rice, she's smelling rice kind of steam coming off the rice that the next to her head and she starts reading it. Cyanide, holy rice, which is holy rice. And then she's singing a young virgin, you know, eating noodles. So there's this sort of religious reference and feeling that you've put, replaced anything religious objects with food, things that keep you alive. Um, yeah. So the other the other character is repeating a line when he he says to her, you know, what we've got to do is just give up hope and keep our strength up. You know, abandon hope. There's no hope, but we've got we've got to look after ourselves and carry on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, anything to add from anyone? See, I see the the um, the picnic and the teeth and that's all holding on to uh, the, phys- the 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 what is a physical life. Yeah. You know, I want to add something. Cutting the end here, not to be too indelicate, but. <laughs> thing the film ends with as well. Okay. Uh, if you say so. Um, oh, sorry, it was a two minute. Okay, uh, she says, We're all wet, let's take off our socks at least. Uh, take off our socks. And he turns to her and says, oh, okay. But our socks aren't the only things that are wet. And she kind of looks at him. <laughs> you know, uh, and he says, I'm, ju- anyway, I'm just saying, our socks aren't the only things that are wet. <laughs> and he looks at him, and then the camera's back, and then uh, they're in the distance, but on top of the flattened tent, they're naked. Okay. So, okay. They've, they've clearly got it together. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. At the end of the film, there. <laughs> Is there something earlier in the movie where she meets her grandma? There's no indication of... Is that supposed to be like a spiritual reality? Is it, is it in her dream, or how does that? You, well, I think the indication is it's just in her, in her head, dream, in her head. Okay. Because she has a series of these things that are in her head, her killing all the staff, and the her hear, hearing that okay. you know I meant to electrocute myself or blow myself up. She's got these recurring kind of psychotic episodes, um, and it's just yeah. So presumably, um, the, the film as a whole is to some extent comment on sort of dehumanisation and mm-hmm. a, a sense of she's she's behaving like a cyborg in the fact that she's really working in this factory, and so she yeah. begins to that that's all literalised and yes, so I don't have that that connection. Yeah, it does. It's also it's also it also then comes into she sort of has this strange rule book which is sort of a sort of anti-Ten Commandments. You must not feel pity for anyone. You must kill all the staff. Okay. Um, but it, it sort of becomes ways in which her, her psychopathy is telling her not to feel bad. So she feels guilty about her mother or being in this situation or being in a happy ground, etc. And she's sort of got these Ten Commandments telling her, don't feel pity, don't feel guilty, don't... Well, you know, just be a robot. Don't be human. And yet, sort of, although she's like trying to fulfil her robotic purpose, the end of the film is clearly ending on actually the the sort of uh, the culmination of her love story with Il Gein, um, and the sort of valuing the things that keep humanity going. Um, so that's that, and that's where you start getting into the difference between the filmmaker's perspective and the individual character's perspective. Maybe, maybe she only sort of gets it right at the end um, with what the filmmaker's saying. It's, you know, it's at that point when you started saying, what are these? What are the kind of conflicts and so on between them? That it's, it might then be useful to go off and say, well, what worldview is this? You know, is this clearly? Oh, here's an existentialist humanist. Is saying all we, you know, all we really know about is the here and now and each other and the precious things that are precious to humanity, and we don't know about whether we know any afterlife or anything like that. And we, you know, we may be doomed. And it's not about some hope for pie in the sky when you die. Probably, probably isn't any hope really. Any visions of the afterlife at all is just psychotic. But 
you've got to give up hope and live now and value human relationships and the things that keep us warm and comfortable. Aren't most of it, a lot of movies that have crazy, crazy people are common on meaninglessness, mm. the, the random meaninglessness of modern life or whatever, isn't it? It's very familiar. One's going to cuckoo's nest, kind of everything. Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. the crazy one around here? Yeah, yes. big eyes. Society or, yeah, or yeah. society or reality. You say, you say it was a South Korean film. Yeah. Do we know what symbolic weight is put on rainbows in South Korean society? Because viewing it through a Judeo-Christian lens, yeah. the rainbow at the end. Yeah. There's a very easy set of, of associations to make with that, but I don't know how valid it is. Because South Korea is a very Christian country. Right. Oh, okay. Signs of hope. Um, I guess the filmmakers saying hope of some kind. Yeah. What hope? I guess you're allowed to project your own idea. Yeah. So hang on, let me draw another line here. Below this line is the filmmaker, because we're getting some uh, interesting uh, things uh, here. So, uh, he. So from, from a Christian perspective, yeah. the rainbow could indicate rainbow. could indicate a, a greater sense of meaning and purpose and a, a, a keeping of God's promise to to not abandon. And renewal after the storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and particularly at the end, I think, right, with the, 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 the music, the visuals, the, the, you know, the storm goes away, the sun comes out, it's beautiful, that's what we, we end on. It's all to create in us a sense, a sense of, a feeling of, ah, oh, it's all come to fruition, they, you know, found their meaning, but there's, there's, there is hope, there is more. Um, it's interesting that she probably still thinks she's a cyborg. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't get better mentally, does yeah. she? But she's so again, this would fit with saying, although he may be using, I don't think he's using that in a Judeo-Christian sense, but in a society, would recognise what that sort of right. make you feel. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> may still fit with interpreting the filmmaker as having this sort of existentialist worldview of, of saying, yeah, there, okay, there is no hope, but. I'm not a nihilist, you know, about this. Because there's that line that the, the bloke came out with. Yeah. We must carry on living through thick and thin. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and, and how do we carry on living? By not really worrying about questions of ultimate truth and meaning and all this, but by thinking about you and me, why, <laughs> by tricking mentally vulnerable <laughs> young yeah. into going out into a pouring rainstorm where they will get soaked, <laughs> then enabling <laughs> them to remove their clothes and taking advantage of them. Remember, they're both mental patients. <laughs> yeah, mental yeah, patient yeah I forgot yeah. that. Fair He's enough. He's a mental patient as well. And a smooth operator. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Going back to the fact that she still believes she's a cyborg, I guess, essentially. Um, from sort of naturalistic world, we are we are machines. Yeah. So that's that's probably consistent with yeah. the way most people live. Um, so that's neither here nor there, anyway. Yeah. yeah. And that fits in with her starting to say starting with the production line, kind of uh, thinking of it. Yeah. Um, so she becomes a sort of more. 
if humans are robots, she's kind of thinking, I've got to be the kind of sort of cyborg or sort of robot thing that's, that's unhuman, but it's perfectly consistent with the filmmaker's worldview to say, no, 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 humans are, I must, you know, kind of thought, I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. Because we're all cyborgs. Yeah, that's okay. So, so again, back to Richard, who's, who's the mad one here? Yeah. She's right, right? We are yeah. cyborgs. She is a cyborg. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Marvellous. So, um, Do you think he's making a comment about determinism? Probably not. No. Probably hasn't gone to no, that. No. <laughs> Yeah. 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 He, he, he says in the, in the director's notes that he wanted to make a film for his daughter and her friends that they could watch when they were a little bit older. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would communicate to them the things that he valued in life, and it's sort of his sort of think of it as a sort of father's advice letter to his daughter. It would make an interesting companion with Hugo, which is also made for the filmmaker's daughter. Yeah. That was very interesting. Uh, father's advice to his daughter. Yeah. Don't trust the bloke who takes you out in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but there you go. So you've got you've just got these three basic categories in mind: beliefs, attitudes, feelings, actions. And you can apply them to the characters and to what the filmmaker's doing. And you can say, are they are these things consistent within the character or within the filmmakers what they're doing? Is that consistent or inconsistent? And are they consistent or inconsistent between the characters and or the filmmakers? So it's sort of got a whole sort of matrix of things that comes out of that. And it's down that road, even if you don't know the label to give the worldview that's being communicated. Oh, you know, oh yes, you know, this is a Hindi worldview, or this is a Buddhist, or you know, whatever. You get out the information, you get out the salient kind of points about what is being communicated, and you're then able to, because you know, the Christian worldview, compare and contrast to yours without having to go through the thing of you know, knowing the whole list of, you know, this is what this worldview thinks about this. Kind of well. Shall we move on to Ghost in a Shell? Is this made by the same filmmaker? No. Uh, this is uh, Mari Oshi, who's Japanese. Okay. Uh, director of Ghost in a Shell, um, a movie called Avalon, that's very interesting, it was made in Poland. Um, <coughs> one of my favourite Japanese filmmakers. Uh, Ghost in the Shell 2 is subtitled Innocence, and it's all about the theme of innocence. And uh, he's mad keen on Master House, and Japanese are mad keen on robots, and they both inevitably find their way into Ghost in the Shell. Um, the film starts with this uh, quotation If our gods and our hopes are nothing but scientific phenomena, then let us admit it must be said that our love is scientific as well. Um, a very scientific, reductionistic, Richard Dawkins esque worldview. Neuroscientific. Yeah. Okay, so we'll go through and we'll, we'll um, see a series of, of clips and we'll gradually be building up because this film does a great job of sort of building as it goes through its sort of atmosphere basically, which is very important to it. Um, so you might like to draw out your A3 bits of paper, like we did the board there, and just 
perhaps you keep adding things as we, we go through. It should be a shame you so, instance takes place in a future time where most human thought has been accelerated by artificial intelligence. There's a man reading it down. External memory can be shared in a universal matrix. Ghost in the Shell preceded the Matrix as the film was a very influential film upon the Bukowski brothers. Um, this is a more recent um, uh, Palm d'Or winning um, uh, entry in uh, this series of films, and there's a TV series in a parallel universe and all sorts. Ah, okay, so uh, the Locus Solus Company, Latin for solitary place, uh, started producing some high-end sex dolls, <laughs> robot sex dolls, uh, who started going berserk, killing users before self-destructing. And then so the, uh, the police, uh, special investigations, you know, called in to investigate. Uh, this is uh, Bato and uh, Togusa, who are policemen from Section 9. Bato uh, is perhaps more cyborg than human at this point, whereas Togusa is uh, more human than cyborg. Um, and basically everyone who can afford it, and lots of government workers and so on, have you know, replacement bits or bodies, just got their brain left. Um, and uh, here is a rather atmospheric scene in which um, the, the police have cornered one of these gynoid robots after a murder, and uh, Bato goes in to, to hunt it. Um, I think we're probably thinking here in terms as we go through of the, what the filmmaker, rather than the, the, the characters, let's do it the other way around. Hear the little quiet voice of Washington. Please, 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 please help, help me. me. Please help me. Oh, I didn't help me. Yeah, it's a rather kind of spooky and spooky and body um, so, horror. And, and was that her blowing up at the end? That, uh, that was his shooting her shot with his shotgun. She didn't self destruct. No. But she, she, she pulled her skin off. Yes, she was like. Here you go, here's a target. Yeah. Okay. And she, she, well, she sort of opened up all her compartments and opened And then she, he shot her. And then so she, he she wanted, wanted to die. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think maybe she would have blown up if he hadn't shot her before she could. Right. It's, yeah. Um, but again, I think it's a rending of garments. Okay, she's rending her, fl- her flesh. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. So I, I think the, the emphasis in the film, as I said, is building up atmosphere and so on. I thought the way into this is what, what the filmmaker is making you feel. Although, it, as is typical of lots of Japanese anime, it has quite a lot of those scenes where one character has a, has a beer and talks to another character whilst quoting Milton and Bible and uh, this philosopher and what do you think about this existential issue let's have a big load of dialogue like they did in the Matrix movies um, to make everybody go oh we've all got an action scene now <laughs> um, that's where you know, it all comes from unfortunately um, so um, Togusa gives us a sort of our sort of almost human eye view uh, into what's going on in the film. But they go to the local police station where the the body of this uh, gynoid has been taken. 
um, based on the art of Hans Bellmer, who was a German artist in the 1930s, um, to talk to the forensic expert. What does this forensic got to say about the case? And uh, they go to see police forensic officer Haraway, named after Donna Haraway, who's an American author of a book called Simeon, Cyborgs and Women, The Reinvention of Nature from 1991. There's oodles of references to things behind uh, the film, the names and the characters and everything. And she suggests that the gynoids are odd, actually malfunctioning. You know what, they're malfunctioning. She says uh, they're committing suicide. And again, particularly through probably that first, that, that column of what is the filmmaker doing to make you feel what you're feeling as you watch this scene in the lab. <laughs> so, what are you feeling? There's a lot of uh, ideas all crammed in together. It's really unsettling, mm. the whole thing. So I guess it's about it's about the the unsettling fact of not knowing where consciousness comes from, and consciousness is yeah. a thing. Are people really any different from machines, or are we really nothing but mm. meat machines? Mm. When when Haraway says. I wonder why humans are so obsessed with creating robots who resemble them. And then a long pause before the not so unrelated question, have you got any children? Yeah. The, the, before they then got on to discussing the whole children as surrogate artificial intelligence, just the way that was brought in was very. moody and, yeah. and, and challenging. Yeah. So you're making notes at the end there when they were playing the file and it kept, it went from picture yeah. to picture of all the robots in the in the thing that we'd seen as if that help was coming out of those you know inert chunks of matter. Um, See, I was almost expecting a response from those inert chunks of matter. I was too. I, I, I thought they were going to speak at something. Yeah, I was. I was expecting it to trigger something and, and yeah, and unleash a whole yeah. new whole new nightmare and they yeah. reanimate <laughs> and take the city. Yes, it's a bit like um, Blade Runner, where the human characters have become more and more mechanical and the machine characters become more human. Yeah, blurring the boundaries yeah. between the two. Literally, the end there, where you know they've talked to her, mm. she's been smoking, and you know, there's oh, you know, weird mothers and so on, and then she's like. <laughs> Also that Wells movie, what's it called? Oh, right. The yeah. idea of you know, robots which turn nasty, yes. which they have done in this movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have to say this is far superior. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, this is the key clue of the movie. Um, a trail of subtle clues and not so subtle fights with the keys are... Um, leads the Bato to this clue where he finds a book in the, a particular crime scene and in note this, this uh, book here has this hologram of regards to what's going on the bookcase and you notice as one of the books is kind of disturbed notice what the book is different from the others he pulls out notice what it is the doll uh, inside 
the doll is a hologram of this young girl. Basically what they find out to give them the title all the way for you. Uh, at the end is that uh, the Locus Solis company have been kidnapping young girls and then taking taking sort of um, brain scans of them and putting the young girl consciousness as it were into the sex dolls to make them more lifelike and therefore more profitable for them um, so the young girls are being held captive and this employee that got killed is sort of trying to help the girls escape and says if you cook up enough of a stink if you can kind of make the robots malfunction someone will investigate and you'll get rescued um, so but they've sort of been sort of human slave trafficked and kept prisoners and linked to these robots to make them their sort of suffering what the robots are but because of this whole are oh, humans any different from robots things it sort of raises well are the robots suffering <laughs> if you can sort of copy somebody's consciousness and download it into a robot well what is consciousness anyway kind of, you know, <laughs> it, it, it opens up all of these uh, issues um this is a scene that took, uh, I think it was one or two years to render for them, this scene. That's a very slow broadband connection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or a very, very high level of, of CGI detail <laughs> for, for a Japanese cartoon. Uh, they, on the, the progress of the, of the investigation, they, they go somewhere, they see this carnival of, um, well animals and people in masks and, and so on and there's this underlying theme going through the through the film about the the nature of the consciousness of of people and robots but also animals and especially and so on and and gods and who if anyone is innocent um, can we as humans obtain our desire for innocence without losing our humanity by becoming a robot or a god or so human becoming an animal um, and this is just it's just a stunning uh, piece of, of work but it, it just you know, without any words sort of in the middle of the film throws up all of the sort of contrasting images of the central themes so any additional scribblings The music mm. was searching quite the right word for it, but almost funeral. The, 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 mm. the music wasn't this is a happy, cheery carnival. No. It, it, it was moody and atmospheric and clearly yes. intended to have a particular effect on, on us yeah. rather than. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that coupled with some of the scenes of the carnival being mm. done in a in a slow motion, mm -hmm. you know, the figures moving, but blurring. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Kim the hacker, um, who um, has downloaded himself into a very obviously robotic body. So there's the kind of central. Humans have this yearning to kind of transcend ourselves, to reach perfection. But 
um, a, a robot body is, is more sort of perfect than a human. But it, is it no longer human, or are humans just robots, and we're not really anything either, in a sense? Um, gods transcend us, but we can't, we can't become a god. Animals have perfect, can have perfect joy in shelling skylarks because they don't, they're not aware of their finitude, their, their mortality, and so on, in the way that we are. So they can be perfectly happy. Whereas we can't. We want to be perfectly happy, but at the cost of being an animal, not being human anymore. So we, we, we're wanting something. What are we wanting? You know, is it possible for us to obtain it? Could there possibly be a worldview that could give this to us? You know? Is it kind of about choice as well? Like we we can't we can't ever be perfect. We can't ever have innocence or transcendence because we have choice and because we're we because we choose wrong. Whereas gods gods don't have choice and animals don't have choice. Address the idea the, the idea that you just that was just in that there of the improvement of humans, um, the fact that we we're terribly inefficient, and he's absolutely right. You can build a better one. You know, you, you can build a, a, a robot to do everything better than. I mean, we're already doing it with, with our current state-of-the-art stuff that you can do with drugs and all kinds of things to improve human... Limitless was a good movie to do with that particular movie. was a terrible, terrible Well, it may be a bad movie, but it's had that idea. Yeah. Now, it doesn't deal with that so much. There's sort of implicit in as much as you know, technology, obviously, has advanced a long way, and it has led to this sort of blurring of the, the line of what's human and what's not. Um, it leads to a lot of uh, nostalgia on the part of people in the media. They're all going around driving sort of replica 1930s cars and things as well. They're all high tech, they've got you know, head up displays and so on, but are styled like old fashioned things as, as if people are sort of have this hankering for the, for the good old days. <laughs> um, even though obviously everyone's spending money left, right, and centre with all the latest technology. Um, but it doesn't particularly bring out that theme of, of human improvement or whatever. Um, quote from Ken the Hacker later on, he says, the, the eeriness of dolls comes solely from the fact that they are completely modelled on human beings. In fact, they're nothing but human, really. They make a space the fear of being reduced to simple mechanisms and matter. In other words, they face... The main space of the fear that fundamentally all humans belong to the void. Science seeking to unlock the secret of life also brought about this fear. The notion that nature can be calculated inevitably leads to the conclusion that humans too can be reduced to basic mechanical parts. So the film both does does the theme very kind of explicitly, (laughs) but it also does it very subtly in the, the imagery. And the filmography, the you know the music and so on, and it's kind of weird that it sort of does both because you know you'd expect a Hollywood movie to sort of have someone say, "This is the theme. This is what we're talking about," and maybe an Asian movie to be a bit more kind of suggestive. Kind of um, Japanese movies often do both. 
this anime does. Is that where the whole, um, you know, the whole Uncanny Valley thing comes from? About the reason mm. why we're, we're very uncomfortable with representations of, of humans that are almost a little bit too huge. Too good, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's that. Uncanny Valley, it's a phrase from um, computer-generated effects, particularly when you're trying to do people. Um, and if you think of a sort of... Um, you know, the Incredibles CGI cartoon. They're, they're, they're human figures, but they're not lifelike. They're just cartoony. We're fine with that. And if you get it absolutely perfect, well, of course, we're fine with that because we don't notice, we don't tell the difference. But if you've got a CGI character that is almost but not quite perfect, um, particularly sort of towards the, the not quite perfect end of this sort of variable kind of scale often uh, people sort of look at it and go you know, that's, oh that's not right and it, it completely you, you can't get immersed in the film because the, the effect just sort of jogs around so often you'll find filmmakers either going for we have this stylized way of showing our human characters or it's not a human character so it's fine you don't know what it's meant to be you know but um, it's the reason why motion capture is not caught on the way they thought it. Yeah, it's because it reduces that fact. And so there's a sort of when the computers get get really good enough, <laughs> um, they won't have that effect. But uh, yeah. So Oshi is posing the question whether humans with their finite consciousness can ever achieve innocence. And it doesn't answer the question. The film poses the question and um, doesn't answer it. And it ends on a scene of, of Bato uh, going, going home uh, with Togusa uh, to Togusa's family who've been looking after Bato's basset hound whilst they've been on the case. And Togusa brings home a present for his young daughter of a doll. <laughs> and the last scene of the film is Bato holding uh, his basset hound and a doll. <laughs> at the end of the case after they've rescued the girls um, Japan is obsessed with this kind of stuff um, that is weird I have some film with this but it wouldn't, wouldn't run so I've rendered it badly but um, th- uh, this android opened the 2009 uh, Japanese fashion show in Tokyo um, it walks, talks, bows turns around, walks off um, it's the first walking uh, android to uh, be in the form of the average uh, vital statistics of the Japanese young lady. Mm-hmm. The makers proudly we have that, you know, little Asimo, the, the, the kind of little, little one. Yeah. But this one is like, the Japanese are absolutely, absolutely obsessed in spending millions of dollars on trying to create androids that look like people and do what people do. So, what, what is it about that culture that drives that? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's because. They love technology. They love technology. What is it about that culture that makes them so driven? But the, the animistic worldview, I think. So, what, what's the connection? So, um, in an animistic worldview, you have the spirit of the tree, the spirit of the field, the spirit of the animal, the spirit of the motorbike, the spirit of the robot, the, everything. You know, has its spiritual aspect to it, as it were. They don't have the, the sort of uh, Western worldview division between this is an inanimate object and this is a spiritual reality. 
Uh, and so they don't look at robots as, oh, it's a cold, unfeeling robot that's going to you know, go, go wrong and take over the world because they've seen lots of 50s B-movies from America with people walking around stiffly with cardboard tubes on them. You know. uh, in the West, we've used, ever since um, the first Android story, story R-U-R, the, the Czechoslovakian play that coined the term robot, um, where you had this slave class of, of the robot that then revolts our uh, uh, Western literature and so on has used the robot as a sort of figure of fear um, and that's not the case in Japanese culture um, you have you know the Astro Boy the, the scientist who loses his son and builds a, a robot replacement like Descartes, you know, <laughs> who goes and saves the world and, you know um, it's all Robots are cute and fun and help people, and it's just a very different cultural take. Whereas we're looking at robots and we're thinking, yeah, I robot, they're all gonna, they're all gonna, their eyes are gonna turn red and they're gonna take over any minute. It's <laughs> is, is, it, is it that unambiguous though? Because it would seem that films like Ghost in the Shell or Ghost in the Shell, yeah. Them, Offer the other side. So, so is it as clear cut as yeah, yeah. robots don't don't have a fear factor in in that culture? No, it's not as straightforward as that. I'm talking in generalities, yeah. but I do I do think the sort of underlying sort of Shinto animistic kind of worldview um, has an influence on cultural attitudes towards technology. Um, particularly technology that is uh, sort of robotic looking like people or whatever that is a background we don't have in Europe or America um, we, we, we immediately think what's going to be Frankenstein's monster mm. uh, but of course we have friendly lovely robots even humanoid looking like it Robbie the robot from uh, forbidden Planet or Canine or C3PO or you know <laughs> I was going to say Metal Mickey but Metal Mickey or, yeah. but I don't know if anyone only you and I Steve only you and I <laughs> yeah um, so we're not unambiguous about it over here but I think the waiting mm. is kind of the opposite in the two cultures yeah um So, uh, let's have a think through. Why don't we start with uh, attitudes or feelings column. What if we, we have too much to write it all up. Let's have a readout of our different uh, bits and bobs. Turn the light on so we can some more light on the subject. How well did that movie do? Because it's pretty heavy duty It's pretty heavy duty stuff, yeah. Um, I don't think it necessarily did very particularly well commercially. It did well in terms of critics. It won a critics, like the critics prizes at like the, yeah at the Cannes Can Film Festival and the Berlin Film Festival and other things. Um, it's considered a classic, but it's it probably didn't break box office. You know, it's not the it's not um, Miyazaki's uh, Ponyo or um, that studio Ghibli. 
and they're very popular. Quite right, too. They. Ponyo was one of the more recent ones. Spirited Away. Spirited Away. Cal's Moving Castle. He's on telly this week. Liputo, Castle in the Sky. What's that called? Akira. The time travel one you've got. Oh, we're going to jump through time. But yes, this, I mean, this kind of film regularly, uh, unlike here, regularly plays at the cinema in, in Japan and will, will regularly be the box office smash of the year, kind of, but not this one, but the, probably the ones that are youth certificate, more general audience, Studio Ghibli type, girl who jumped through time type stuff. Yeah. I should have a pen and I don't have a pen and you're going to go and get a pen. Let's start with attitudes because that was the one I said we'll focus on and then we'll bring in the other. I wound up writing attitude. most things down in that, not sure which column yeah. they ought to go in, but just yeah. using it as a general notes space. Seen that there'd be maybe you can't be written mm-hmm. with initiative. Yeah. Um, so she talks about her able to be disposable, mm. although that's a character thing, I guess that's something that you just kind of about. Yeah. Um, so. And, and, and related to that, quite early on, she queries the clear distinction between the humans and Machines. Mm-hmm. The, the, I can't remember what question she was asked, but yeah. she says like only if you maintain the clear distinction between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so there's an, an anxiety about what it means to be human and about whether humans are. So in terms of beliefs, and it seems to be, of course, put questions under there because it's not doesn't settle it one way or the other, he's questioning is there a distinction and he's also in terms of attitudes make, if making us feel unsettled, I think it's a good word there about um, whether we are machines it's yeah, like that quote that you had at the beginning of the film, which is about, yeah. you know, if this is what we are, then, yeah. you know, there's nothing. Yeah, we've got to go the whole hog with it. You kind of, you can't, yeah, say, oh, everything's, everything's science, but, you know, I, I still have love. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you think the film uh, ties that into the, um, whether human beings are valuable, though, and that they have any intrinsic value? Is that the discomfort of the detective who's trying to solve his case, but she, yeah. uh, the um, scientist is, by making that tie, there's this yeah, well, awful kind of anxiety that, oh my gosh, if mm. these things are just lined up with their heads taken off and bits all over the place, if yeah. that's all we are, then that's yes. not good. He reacts very emotionally to, you know, my, my daughter is not a doll. Okay, kind of, yeah, kind of. yeah. This is takes it personally. Possibly, yeah. Be, yeah. If you're going um, down that route, I don't want to go down there with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, a sort of fear or rejection of reductionism. 
at least on some characters' parts. It's like there are characters who reject it, there are characters like the Kim the Hacker who seem to sort of embrace it. And the filmmaker is being ambiguous with it, sort of phrasing it so it doesn't... You yeah. said earlier on that uh, Tagusa is the one whose perspective is closest to the audience perspective. Yeah. As the film goes on, does does his perspective shift? Does does he become more more open to these ideas and more um, mm. does he start buying into it or does he remain no that that's mm. not yeah, I think he becomes more and more unsettled as the film goes on, um, but doesn't sort of. He's probably still on the on the no side, but I think he's very very unsettled by it. And there's a scene when they go to visit Kim the hacker. He hacks into their e-brains and gives them illusions of the reality of them searching through his house to try and find him, and. Um, Bato um, works out that it's an illusion and Togusa doesn't. Does Togusa have his own brain? Uh, yes, he has what he's mostly and his own. And everybody else yeah. has what's called an e brain, brain. which is yeah, presumed yeah. uh, joined up to some matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Togusa has enough that he can he can link into the matrix and send sort of radio messages to his partner okay. and things just by thinking. So he's partly wired up. He's partly, he's, he's partly yeah, but he's, he's mostly human. Not in, <laughs> he's the most mostly human character in the film. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know how it's written, but there's a kind of there's a sense of lostness about the whole thing as well. That like, yeah. kind of you just get this real sense of kind of confusion and yeah. Um, it's all desperation. Yeah. Well, after they've been through Kim the Hacker and these illusions and so on, and Tobias sort of saying, "Why didn't you warn me about that?" And Bato is also Josh again. So, well, how do you know? How do you know this is real? That kind of, kind of whole. Thanks, <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like no, you, know, you you just need to believe that your family are real, and you'll get back to them, and and everything will be fine, and you know you can't prove it, but you know. You just got to believe that. Just kind of, it's got to be a basic belief for you. <laughs> um, we can't now that we we are so susceptible to to having our perception of reality warped because of how we've developed ourselves. We can't actually again, like the foot sort of first one. We can't really really answer the question. But in order to keep living and be sane, you have to believe that. We have, we have escaped, um, and we're going back to your family now, kind of thing. Um, so he's, you know, Togus is very unsettled by the end of the film, but he's not by any means con- sort of converted or certainly not embracing mm-hmm. those things like Kim the Hacker. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'm this sense of. Uh, I played this film, the whole film, there's obviously more to it than I can show you through a few clips. Um, to the Norwegian class that I teach in in Norway um, and we went to the cafeteria for a sort of round table chat about it and uh, Margaret the first uh, best question in it, which students sort of said so, so how did that make you feel and there's this, 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 this sort of this sort of <laughs> uh, one of the students probably was sort of depressed <laughs> this sort of 
certainly is a film that sort of makes you feel sort of heavy and depressed and unsettled and lost. It's, it's and tapping into some very like deeply rooted anxieties, yeah. isn't it? Like fundamental anxieties about what it means to be human. Yeah. Uh, and it's very unsettling as well because the film doesn't answer the question that it raises. Mm. I mean, it's a wonderful evangelistic opportunity because it's like. You know, could possibly happen to humans whereby we, we stay humans but we become sort of innocent and perfected and, and no longer mortal and we can have an, an infinite joy um, without losing our humanity becoming animals or becoming a robot you know, but retaining our humanity sort of like becoming a god but not becoming infinite and sort of nothing in nirvana and so on which is another sort of idea brought in um, how, you know, what, where can we kind of find that <laughs> it's Jesus <laughs> <laughs> it's called heaven <laughs> you know um, <laughs> and this filmmaker just doesn't you know doesn't know of course but uh, <laughs> yeah well that was on this religious well I no I I don't just asking the right questions and, and basically saying this can't be an answer and that can't be an answer and this can't be an answer but it's a darn good question and isn't it unsettling and that's where he leaves it um, yeah the, the uh, Bato's partner from the first film Ghost in a Shell who was a, a female police operative called the Major at the end of the first film merges her consciousness with a, an AI program that's become conscious um, that they've been hunting through the film and they merge into one new being that now lives in the internet, in the web so she's sort of transcended humanity and it's her that enables Bato to realise they've been tricked by Kim the Hacker into not seeing the reality that's there um, and she comes and sort of helps Bato rescue the girls at the end of the film by downloading herself into one of the Gynoid robots or a bit of herself as much as the robot can take she kind of incarnates at the end of the film to help save the girls is the movie easy to follow? yeah I, I think I when I watched it the second time I got it all okay <laughs> yeah you might need to watch it twice having had a tour you watch it once you'll get it um uh, and my, my paper on the Cold Watch website on the, on the film as well uh, she, she downloads and then they have this bit of conversation and, he, and Bato asks her you know, are you happy now having you know, transcended so are you happy now and she said mm, happiness oh, it's sort of nostalgic value so I said yeah um, at least I'm not worried <laughs> it's not sort of I'm not disturbed it's almost like she's, she's reached Nirvana. She's so transcended humanity that she has kind of... Has she lost her humanity? It's, it's still, it's kind of... In, in, in kind of perfecting herself and becoming this new thing, has she really, is she really not human anymore? So let me ask you a question. some sort of vestiges of linkage to the world. <laughs> I think we talked a lot about the beliefs and the attitudes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what... Uh, hmm. I mean, it is a it's a detective story. Obviously, yeah. That those are the actions of the. Yeah. But what what do you learn about 
how the characters live their lives based on these beliefs. I yeah, can yeah. really see enough of them. How does it issue forth in the way? Yeah. Do they nihilistically say, oh, well, you know, I'm just a machine, or do they kind of try and create purpose and value, yeah. or what do they do? How do they Yeah, do? and it varies, of course, very much from character to character. So Kim the Hacker seems to be of the view humans are nothing but machines and machines are bodies are more perfect than humans and so the closest I can get is to download myself into a into a robot. Right. So I need to become a robot. I need to become myself. a robot as much as I can. Right. Um, and so he does that. Um, but he's also realised that I can't I can't really fulfil my because it's still my human consciousness right. which can't have the Skylark's joy. Hogusa uh, is kind of more and more unsettled and told by Bata, you've just got to believe that reality is reality and you know what's what and you really do have a family and you know, he loves his daughter and he's upset by the thought that people are just machines and so on, but he doesn't embrace it. Whether he has any, we don't know if he has any sort of principles, doesn't show any principled way in which he rejects that, but he emotionally rejects that, I think, even though he continues to be intellectually disturbed by it. And at the end of the film, he goes home to his family and he you know, hugs his wife and his kid and gives, gives her a doll as a present, even, you know, ironically. Even though this is the thing, it's like, well, I'm going to give my kid a doll. <laughs> despite everything that's been said in the film before. So he, he just seems to sort of, like, let's just press on, you know. What was the argument um, about dolls again? I think I had control following that. Oh, well, um, yeah. When we have children, is that sort of any different than us creating robot dolls okay. in our image? Why are we obsessed with creating things in our image? Why do girls play with dolls? They're not actual baby substitutes, are girls rehearsing for motherhood which is obviously what most people would kind of say I would guess or is it just that um, it's the the sort of child a- analogue of our desire to pro- create or to make a robot on our own image or, or whatever it's, it's not necessarily just what sort of life does to... So it's a sort of program response rather than a human... Yeah, yeah, maybe. And is, Um, is, was you saying that children kind of of fall into the same category as robots or animals? Yeah, well, that was about, you know, so we we often, we don't treat children as saying morally responsible when they're very young until we sort of say, oh, you've come of age, you're, you know, you're under the law now, and so on. So they're not really human yet. So they're, they're innocent, so they're not human. So they, yeah. They're what, so what are they? <laughs> they're not good. They're not good for joy as well, because yeah. they don't know yeah. about the finitude of life. And right, so the sort of innocence of, of childhood, but they're, they're not human yet. When you become human, you lose your innocence. And then you're forever trying to sort of find a way of getting it. But here are all sorts of ways shown in the film where, where we know we can't actually get it. <laughs> so the definition of human is, by that measure, is one which requires a level of maturity and self-awareness yeah. Yeah. rather than the biological yeah. definition of it. Because 
because it it seems I mean initially it just seems extraordinary to me that you can define humanity in a way that excludes children mm. who are physically and biologically mm. clearly of a piece of genus yeah 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 but it's uh, it's taking a definition of humanity in terms of what you can do mm. rather than what you are right. yes. which is just like modern day medical ethicists or an atheist like, mm. like Peter Singer yes. who, who will say a person is defined in terms of what it can do it can feel, it can be conscious, it can anticipate the future, it can be etc um, this newborn baby can't do that, it's not human in fantasy, it's fine. I suppose if you, if you buy into the idea that humans are essentially machines, you, yeah. you have to define humans that way. Because right. if and also, humans are not special, they're just another yeah. kind of animal. Because yeah. the sum of our parts is nothing more than, you know, just a robot made out of skin, isn't it? So, on, on exactly those kind of grounds, Peter Singer will argue, you know, if you had a forced choice between saving uh, an infant baby or an adult chimpanzee from the burning building, you should save the adult chimpanzee because it's a person. But the baby's not. Yeah, and yet, instinctively, yeah. I think the vast majority of people wouldn't think twice as we reject that. We reject really? that notion. Yeah. But he's rattling your cage, is what he's doing. Yeah. Because frankly, if it was his baby, of course he's not going to say Actually, if it was anybody's baby, he still yeah. wouldn't say. I, I pay you money, he would never say the chimpanzee. It's still Let's safe. set up a situation <laughs> where he has to choose. <laughs> well, he, he's already done it because he looks after one of my. That's right. <laughs> After his mum, and he really shouldn't. He's got dementia. He should let her go. Because mm. he's written about you should yeah. not look after old people who are. So how dying. how does he explain his action on that? Well, I'm, I'm being inconsistent with my worldview because yeah. I, I can't overcome my feelings. But yeah. what I should do is yeah. okay. You know. So well, there's no difference there, there is, a, there is at least an integrity yeah. to that, and that he's saying, yeah. Yeah, 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 I shouldn't do this, but I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is another aspect of, to the idea of what a human is, which is some uh, under some definitions, leaving aside the biological mm. one, that humans are fundamentally relational beings. Mm. So if you reach the point where you really are not relational and you're entirely egotistical and selfish and only got preoccupied with yourself, the question then is if you really cease to be what a human is and under some definitions that <laughs> well, I'm not saying I'm not saying that I, I necessarily believe this I'm not sure I know what I believe about this but if hell is a place of isolation not just isolation from God but isolation from other humans Eventually, you know, the great divorce, mm. you become so isolated, your house is so far out. So, uh, there are some theologians that say that you simply cease to become a human being, you just self destruct mm. because a human that's just on their own is not really a human at all, since a human, by definition, must relate in some way mm. to something else. I, that's, those are just yeah. the ideas that yeah. get I'm not saying necessarily that we are. I don't know what happens, frankly, completely to those who are isolated from God. Only He knows that. I was thinking about other characters. Bato, of course, is trying to solve the case. He seems to be angry when he rescues the girl, the little girl at the end. He, he's angry at her. 
because um, he does seem to kind of take the line that because these all these robots are out there with a kind of copy of her consciousness and she's deliberately created this kind of um, self-destructing, angsty, suicide yourself kind of state of mind when they were copying her in order to get rescued, she has inflicted suffering on all of these robots because he doesn't seem to make a distinction between you know, what is consciousness anyway, kind of all that. So he's actually angry at the girl who's been kidnapped when he rescues her. But, so but he does rescue her and kind of comfort her song. So her, so her action in, in creating that, that angsty state mm. is defensible if you have a starting point of humans are this, robots are just machines. Yeah. But if you, if you don't have that distinction, then... then yeah. She's done great harm on them yes. for purely selfish reasons. Yeah. Now, when you say so that he's, kind of, like he's kind of conflicted about it, yeah. Is it raw data or is it consciousness as in like something immaterial? Uh, like, when you say yeah. download, do they. The, the film doesn't go into detail on <laughs> this kind of matter, unfortunately. But it's clear what's going on. Yes. So if you yeah. don't know what your new consciousness is, then yes. you can't go into detail. That's right. That's a very good point, Jamie, yeah. Um, so it's not specified <laughs> in the film what, what the ins and outs of the underlying theory of consciousness that they're playing with is, mm-hmm. even if they have a con- consistent one. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you can look at various different characters that are more or less consistent with their, their beliefs and their attitudes and how they live out in that worldview. Um, and the filmmaker, well, one level is difficult because his beliefs are kind of unquestioning rather than stating. Mm. Given that I'm ambiguous about these things, I'm raising this question. It is a very disturbing question, and so I'm consistent in making you feel disturbed about it mm. and disturbing you to try and get you to think about it. Because if you don't think about it, you can't look for an answer. Mm. And I'm, these seem to be non-answers, and I'm showing those to you. Uh, in order to, you know, don't go down this way. That that's not the way to go. And I'm leaving you at the end with think, with kind of thinking. Well, is, is there a way to go? Are we stuck, or is there another avenue? Would you describe it as a? Uh, Sophie was talking about the kind of the lostness. Mm. Is that like a dystopian vision of of a world in which those realities it just makes you feel? Well, as the Norwegians are just totally depressed yeah and that's certainly an emotional response that we would have to to these ideas yeah. I was even thinking things like that that huge crowd scene with the with the carnival and so on the huge buildings mm-hmm. they fly in on this this amazing aircraft they fly around this big cathedral of a building it's huge and these guys are going little tiny and everyone's kind of lost in this sort of dystopian yeah Future and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, there we go. There we go. So, well. so uh, this is a sort of recappy slide. Um, <laughs> spirituality is beliefs and attitudes, which incorporates feelings, which tip you off to attitudes and actions, and they reinforce each other. 
and um, you can ask these questions about the characters in the film or the makeup of the film and the consistency within and between those things and I think that helps you get a lot of kind of meat and juice out of the film which you uh, the next stage it would then be another thing to say oh well so what is the filmmaker's world thing? what is Bateau's world you know to put a label on it or kind of say oh he's this that or the other um, which in terms of some help towards Steve said fresh copy of something here are seven major worldviews and their beliefs on sort of half a dozen major issues um, which is the the session which I did do <laughs> yeah So, uh, yeah. No, I think the movies like the ones you should, uh, the last one you should just yeah. I mean, they're so, it's absolutely saturated with ideas. Um, I think it becomes harder watching, you know, a lot of the different kinds of movies that we watch. You're watching yet another thriller with yet another car chase and more explosions, and you're thinking, okay, I've seen this quite a lot. Am I entertained? Well, enough for me not to press stop, but not enough for me to ask any of these questions. Yeah, I think I just I'd think, love to write a Cold Watch article on this thriller. I think I'm just watching the bad guys get beaten by the good guys again. And move some. some it's harder, I think, yeah. sometimes to go deep with some some of the movies that get. Yeah. Not that it's impossible, because you know we can always ask yeah. good questions, can't we? Even if the movie's not really generating yeah. a great deal. Yeah, I think that when everybody has a spirituality, whether they're a personal or, or a fictional character, it might be self-contradictory, it might be subconscious, or unconscious, you know, but it, it's there. Everybody. They're all motivated. Does stuff, power. motivated to do stuff, and they must believe certain things are true in order to do that. Right. Um, how inherently interesting or fascinating the, the portrayal the story, of the character or the yeah. story or, you know, is another thing. Again, how much juice there is there. I, I've obviously made life easy for myself by picking filmmakers who are like deliberately thinking I've got lots of juicy ideas that I want to communicate to my audience through this film <laughs> um, uh, you know, The Hangover Part 3 I guesstimate this is not um, <laughs> well, it's, it's in Hollywood's interest the dumbed down things to the point of yeah. sort of mass appeal isn't it yeah um, but do you think I mean you made a little comment there about uh, a lot earlier on about the parts in the Matrix, for example, where they're, they're talking to each other. Yeah. And I do realise that there is a component of the audience which simply switches off when people are talking at any level beyond, you know, pass me the milk. Yeah. They just want another chase for whatever reason. But there are, but there is a substantial part of the audience, surely, that got a lot out of the. Isn't that yeah. partly what made The Matrix such a breakout movie, which was it was action and ideas together, mm. and it seemed to mm. to really rise above your average mm. thriller action, quite apart from the fact that the special effects were that a, a jump think, up from yeah. there. I think it's possibly fair to say that the first Matrix film mm. took all sections of the audience with it, nice. and 
and the, the, ones, and the yeah. ones the ones who were there for the action yeah. would happily accept that the, the, the second one much more so than the third one to some degree yeah. I don't think managed the balancing act yeah. as well no, the first one was a stand stand yeah. I would say the, the ideas that were talked about in the first one suffused the the things that we, we, we saw and heard on on screen all the time as well whereas mm-hmm. in, the, in the sequels it kind of yeah. alternated a, yes, a lot more right. it was kind mm-hmm. of like here are the ideas and here's an action scene whereas the Matrix was like here's an action scene that brings up an idea that's being talked about yes. that, that mm-hmm. shows you what's and it was so fresh yeah. such a mm-hmm. fresh idea it was, the, the, the power of the idea was so strong it infiltrated everything yeah, which right. took place in the film which was yeah, which is fantastic. So to just like Ghost in the Shell too, all of the kind of imagery and music and filmmaking of it is absolutely drenched in the ideas and the references behind the ideas that are talked about in the big talky chunks. And it doesn't do this sort of alternating thing. Um, as if you suddenly we've stopped the chase movie and now we're in a philosophy seminar for a bit. It's kind of hey, this is a sort of philosophical chase, you know. <laughs> so yeah, um, and obviously that's the kind of um, the ideal in terms of what we're sort of approaching, <laughs> filled with, with a certain sort of desire to get stuff out of. Well, in some ways, that's probably the difference between a film that is alterish and a film that is a studio product. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. a studio product, it's just all the sorts of people just taking their own and kind of yeah. chopping and changing, and you know, this is all the sound of, and this is yeah. this is an idea that I want to communicate. It's much more of a product rather yes. than. A, it's a compromise between the original the, idea and what sells. Yeah. I, I, yeah. think, I think we need to to draw this in um, Pete have you said all you wish to say in, in uh, summing up is there anything else you want to <laughs> yes I think, so. I think, I think it, it, it's you know it's a bit of an experiment it seemed, it seemed to work mm-hmm. uh, and I hope you'll um, find that a useful little toolbox in the back as you approach stuff that will be helpful thank you thank you very much thank you very much, thank you very much. Thank you.